There are 8.1 billion people in the world today with 140 babies being born every minute. But let me ask you this. According to the Bible, how many different kinds of people are there? There are two. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Or you could say the children of God and the children of the devil. Now that may sound harsh to you, but let me prove it. In Genesis chapter 1, God created a perfect world. In fact, verse 31 says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And that perfect garden of Eden had everything you could ever want or need, including majestic scenery, beautiful flowers, diverse animals, and trees with abundant fruit. But there was one tree that was not to be touched. Genesis 2.16, God says to Adam, you may surely eat of any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And of course, what happens? The devil tempts Eve, Adam eats the fruit, and as a result, sin enters the world and death through sin. God pronounces this curse. Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So the devil's seed and the woman's seed. He, the seed of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you, the devil, shall bruise his heel. So God promises a mortal blow to the devil, but not without impact to the seed of the woman, ultimately the Lord Jesus. So God promises, Genesis 3.15, that Jesus will crush the devil's head, which happens at the cross through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But God also promises enmity. He says, I will put enmity. So anger, hostility, and the desire to kill between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. So violent, ongoing hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So there's a battle constantly raging between those who love God and those who hate God. And we see that battle all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And the truth is, it's still raging today. Because there's only two kinds of people in the world today. And it's not men and women, black and white, Democrat and Republican, or those with money and those without money. But instead, the children of God and the children of the devil. In fact, 1 John 3, 7 says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as Jesus is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning since the beginning. By this it is evident and it is obvious who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. What is John saying? He's saying there's two kinds of people in the world today. Those who love God, those who hate God. Those who by faith in Christ practice righteousness and those who reject Christ and walk in sin. So you're either a seed of the woman or a seed of the serpent. And that radical contrast, which is evident and obvious, is seen most clearly in our passage this morning. More than anywhere else in 1 Samuel. This contrast 
between two kings. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 22. 1 Samuel 22 is on page 245. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chair in front of you, I wholeheartedly encourage you to grab one of those Bibles. It is so helpful to have the Bible open, my outline in your Bible. We're going to be walking right through the text. You can see exactly what the Bible says for yourself. Title of my sermon, A Contrast of Kings, Three Points, The Safekeeping King, The Savior King, and The Righteous King. So you're turning, let me remind you of the context, because ever since chapter 17 and David killing Goliath, we've had enmity. Enmity between Saul and David. Chapter 18, verse 29 says, so Saul was David's enemy continually. So there's this enmity, violent, ongoing hostility between Saul and David. We're going to see it this morning. Follow along as I start reading 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 6 to 10. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Notice verse 8. That all of you have conspired against me. So Saul is sitting here whining and complaining and paranoid because he says, no one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. Therefore, none of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. Number one, Saul is suspicious of his servants. And he's paranoid that they're willingly and consciously keeping critical information from him, which is obviously not the case. But that's what happens when you're not trusting the Lord or living for his glory. You think everyone is against you, including your own servants. So what happens? Well, verse 9 Then answered Doag the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he acquired of the Lord for, for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. What's the outcome of that little statement? Well, Saul's going to not only be suspicious of his servants, but number two, paranoid of his priests, specifically Ahimelech. Before I read on, let me just remind you of that whole interaction from back in chapter 21, verses 1 to 9. You can flip there if you want. Chapter 29, chapter 21, 1 to 9. David went up to him like the priest and said to him, chapter 21, verse 2, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything about the matter of which I send you. Now, some have accused David of lying here saying that's not technically true. Saul didn't send him, so David is knowingly, purposely deceiving the priest in order to get what he wants. But I don't think that's the case. Instead, I think David's flying high here on purpose at 30,000 feet in order to give Ahimelech plausible deniability. Because otherwise he would have just said, your king, King Saul, the seed of the serpent, is trying to kill me. So you're going to have to make a choice to him, like right here, right now, between me or him. 
which would have forced Ahimelech into a terrible situation. So instead, David says, essentially, there's a matter, there's a delicate situation between me and the king that's resulted in me being here. That way, Ahimelech has total plausible deniability, which he does, which matters because Ahimelech doesn't know anything. And therefore, he's done nothing wrong. And he has nothing to hide when Saul summons him. Flip back to 22, verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as it is this day? Notice that's not a question. That's an accusation. Verse 14, Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house. Is today the first time I have inquired of God for him? No. Therefore, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of this, much or little. You see, Ahimelech has total plausible deniability because he doesn't know anything. Let not the king impute anything, anything negative, anything wicked, or any conspiracy to your servant because I don't know what you're talking about. Why is that so important? Because Ahimelech is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. So he's without sin or conspiracy or any wrongdoing. Instead, he's a loyal servant, subject to the king and priest to the Lord. Yet Saul's going to kill him. And all the priests and all the people. Number three, killing of God's people. Look at verse 16. In response to Ahimelech knowing nothing, the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand is also with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. My goodness. Saul is paranoid. But notice the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Why? Because they're totally innocent. And everybody knows it. And oh, by the way, they're priests of the Lord. So to obey Saul is to sin against God, and they're not going to do it. So what does Saul do? Verse 18, the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite, meaning Doeg from Esau, so as in Jacob and Esau, so the seed of the serpent, that Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest. And killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of priests, he put to the sword. Look at this. 
both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. Now, do you remember 1 Samuel 15? God commanded Saul to kill all the Amalekites, so the enemies of God, the seed of the serpent. But Saul spared them, including King Agag, whose offspring was Haman, the Agagite, who threatened to kill the entire people of God in the book of Esther. So there, Saul disobeys God, not killing the seed of the serpent, his enemies. But here, when the people of God are totally innocent, he doesn't hesitate for a second to devote to destruction every man, woman, and child. All the seed of the woman and every child of God, he murders, he kills, he devotes to total destruction. Are you seeing Saul for who he really is? He's a murderous king and a wicked seed of the serpent who's suspicious of his servants, paranoid of his priests, and kills the people of God. Saul is the murderous king. And the juxtaposition here is incredible because the contrast between these two kings could not be stronger or more clear. It's like black and white, good and evil, love and hate. So A, the murderous king, now B, the safekeeping king. Look at verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. And David says, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your house, Abiathar. What is David saying? Sure sounds like David has taken responsibility for Saul's sin. I think that's right. Although David did nothing wrong, he's still taking ownership for the situation. He's taking ownership for the sins of others. And as a result, he says to Abiathar, verse 23, Stay with me and do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safe keeping. Could the contrast be any greater? I mean, when Ahimelech the priest comes to Saul, he says, you shall surely die. But when Abiathar the priest comes to David, he says, do not be afraid with me. You shall surely be safe. You shall surely be secure. You shall surely live. So Saul's the king who kills priests. David saves priests. Saul kills the people of God. David provides safety and security and leadership for the people of God. I mean, don't you remember chapter 22, verse 2? And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul and everyone who was broken and hurting, sick and sore, weak and weary and heavy laden gathered to David and he became their commander, their king. What an incredible contrast between the king who kills and the king who makes safe. But you have to see that in light of the enmity between these two kings because Saul wants the one true king, David, dead. So it's in that context that we see this contrast. And there's only two kinds of people in this world. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the difference is evident and obvious. Which brings us to number two, the savior king. 
Or the contrast only gets highlighted because Saul just killed the people of God, but now David's going to save the people of God. Follow along, starting in chapter 23, verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines. And notice, save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their, brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. What's the comparison? Well, how about the fact that Saul is a murderous king who just killed all the people of God in Nob, but now David saves the people of God in Keilah? I mean, could the contrast be more evident or more obvious? But it's more than that, isn't it? Because David is saving the people of God from the enemies of God, And he's talking directly with God in order to do it. Verse 2, therefore David inquired of the Lord. But his men were nervous. Verse 4, David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him. So David has direct connection, direct communication with God Almighty who's instructing him, guiding him and leading him in the right direction so that he might save his people. Saving the people of God from the enemies of God. David is talking directly to God Almighty. Who is Saul talking to? Doeg the Edomite? His servants? Or worse, himself? The Holy Trinity of me, myself, and I. As we'll see, Saul assumes the will of God, whereas David seeks the will of God. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 6. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David at Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now remember, the ephod is what priests wear. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said... God has given him, given David, into my hand, into Saul's hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Do you hear how Saul assumes the will of God? He's assuming that God has given David into his hands. He's assuming that. God didn't tell him that. He's consulting with the Holy Trinity of me, myself, and I, and this is my conclusion. God has given him into my hands. Therefore, verse 8, Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. Verse 9, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. That's incredible. Do you understand? Abiathar is the priest. David is the king. But here the priest is bringing the ephod to the king. So you have this king who also seems to be the priest 
Because he's talking directly to God on behalf of the people. That's incredible. Verse 10 clarifies. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Now you have to recognize these are the people that David just saved from the Philistines. So he just saved them. But now they're giving him up. Why? Well, because the last city that helped David, namely Nob, Saul killed every man, woman, and child, ox, donkey, and sheep, and killed the 85 priests. So they're not taking any chances. Just to confirm, David asks again. So notice, David's not making any assumptions. He asks again, verse 12. And David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? Saul said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, rose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. Notice this last phrase. Verse 14. And Saul sought David every day. But God did not give him, David, into Saul's hand. So Saul's the murderous king who kills the people of God, every man, woman, child, and priest. And Saul assumes the will of God. Verse 7, he said, God has given David into my hand. That's Saul's assumption. He assumes the will of God. But verse 14 says that even though Saul sought David every stinking day of his life, never stopped hating David, never stopped seeking David, never stopped wanting David dead. So enmity, right? This violent ongoing hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So even though there's this constant enmity, Saul wants David dead. God did not give David into Saul's hand. So Saul's the murderous king. In contrast with David, who's the savior king? Because David saves the people of God. He doesn't kill them. And David is constantly seeking the will of God over and over and over again, not assuming the will of God. And by doing so, he shows himself to be a king who's also a priest who communicates directly with God. So Saul assumes the will of God where David seeks the will of of God. And yet, no matter how hard Saul tries, he just can't track down that stinking David. Right? That's all he wants to do. He cannot kill him. Now, just for fun, let me show you another contrast so we can pause. These stories get kind of intense. So we'll pause for a moment. Application. Look at this contrast. Verse 15. Right, there's juxtaposition. Means the Bible says one thing right here, and right next to it, it says another thing. And these things are put in direct contrast so you can see them. So what did we just see? 
David is, or Saul is constantly trying to track down David to kill him, right? And yet he can't find him. God does not give him into his hand. Now look at verse 15. David saw that Saul had come down to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. He's in the wilderness of Ziph. Do you know where Ziph is? Yeah, me neither. What does that mean? It means he's out in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) Absolutely nowhere. And yet, look at verse 16. Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God and said, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you, for you shall be king over Israel. Let me ask you this question. How in the world does Jonathan find David so easily? I mean, Saul can't find him anywhere, no matter how hard he tries. Yet Jonathan apparently walks right up to him in the middle of the wilderness. Right? Does he have some sort of track my iPhone on David or something like that? You get that impression, don't you? Walks right up to him. Saul can't find him to save his life. Jonathan walks right up to him in the middle of the wilderness. Hey, David, how are you doing? Do you understand? It highlights that David is number three, protected by the power of God, which, by the way, happens again in verse 28. Because, again, Saul tries to kill David, so this constant enmity, and actually gets super close. The text says his men are closing in on David. When all of a sudden, a messenger comes totally out of nowhere, shouting, Saul, Saul, you have to hurry home. The Philistines are raiding your lands. Saul immediately gets up and departs, even though David was close at hand. David is protected by the power of God who supernaturally intervenes on his behalf. But before we move on, let me ask you this. How does Jonathan encourage, edify, and strengthen David? Notice verse 16. Jonathan went up to David and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. Why? Because you shall be king over Israel. How does Jonathan strengthen David? He strengthens him by reminding him of the promises of God. So telling him what he already knows but at times is tempted to forget, especially in the midst of difficulty. Oh, beloved, I so desperately want you to see this. What is the best way that you can walk alongside your brothers and sisters in Christ? It's by reminding them of the promises of God. Reminding them of what the Bible declares to be true. Rather than saying things that you don't even know are true. For example, I was just in the emergency room the other night with a good brother here at the church. And I could have easily told him all sorts of things. Including, I'm sure it's no big deal. I could have said to him, I'm sure that we're going to get out of here quickly. I could have said to him, I'm sure that you're going to recover and be totally fine. Now, certainly those would have been nice things to say, encouraging things to say. 
But who knows if they're actually true? We sat in the emergency room for four hours. Hey, I'm sure we're going to get out of here quickly. No, we're not. <laughs> That's not true. Right? Saying things that are nice but we don't know to be true is radically different than reminding people of the promises of God. That no matter what happens, God will never leave you nor forsake you. That his plan, no matter how difficult, is always good. That he's at work right now in both of us so that we might be godly men, faithful men, and patient men, even in the emergency room waiting room. And that what matters most is not the outcome. What matters most is how we live. That we would be men who walk in righteousness. Because we know we have a Savior. And we know that our eternal outcome is secure. How do we encourage, edify, and strengthen one another? By reminding each other of the promises of God. And by speaking truth into a world filled with lies. And calling one another to faithfully walk in righteousness. Summary, what have we seen so far? We've seen an incredible contrast of kings in the context of enemy, right? One king, a murderous king, suspicious of servants, paranoid of priests, assumes the will of God and kills the people of God. Whereas the other king owns the sin of others, provides safety for the trouble, seeks the will of God, saves the people of God, and is protected by the power of God. One last contrast. Because this king is not only a safekeeping king and a savior king, he's also, number three, a righteous king. Let's pick up the narrative, 1 Samuel 24, starting in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfold by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. And David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Verse 6. So he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Can you even imagine... Saul has literally been stalking David day and night, night and day, since all the way back in chapter 18. So constantly trying to kill him for six chapters. When all of a sudden, Saul's sitting right there in front of him, away from his 3,000 soldiers, in contrast to David's 600, and he's totally exposed, and he's totally vulnerable. Verse 3 says, Saul went in to relieve himself. So he's all alone, and he's going to the bathroom. And can't you just picture David's army 
Because they're right there behind him. Essentially, they're silently singing for all they're worth. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice. We will rejoice if you just strike him down. Just kill him already. He's the seed of the serpent. He's right there. Hmm. What does David do? He cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, which no doubt symbolizes the kingdom of Israel being torn from Saul and being given to David. Chapter 15, verse 22, 28, who is a better man than Saul, not in and of himself, but because he's a man after God's own heart. Don't you see? That's exactly what's going on here. David is a man after God's own heart. So he feels badly. Deep conviction just for cutting off a small corner of Saul's robe. I mean, verse 5 says, and afterward, David's heart struck him. Why? Because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. What does it mean? It means he is feeling deep remorse, even for lifting his hand against God's anointed king, which is exactly what makes him, number three, a righteous king who is both humble and faithful, which is evident and obvious by his explanation in verse 6. David says to the men, the Lord forbid it that I should do this thing to my Lord, to Saul, that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So David shows himself to be righteous because he will not take the kingdom by force. And he will not take it by bloodshed. But he will wait patiently for the Lord to give it to him in God's good and perfect timing. How does Saul respond? Well, look at verse 17. He's in agreement. Verse 17, he says to David, you are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good where I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. Verse 20, and now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Boy, that sounds pretty good. Saul might even start thinking Saul is repenting of his wicked ways. Unfortunately, by chapter 26, enmity continues, and Saul's seeking David's life all over again. Seed of the serpent trying to kill the seed of the woman. Now, as we transition, let me just ask, What have we seen in chapters 22 to 24? Haven't we seen a contrast of kings? So a murderous king, suspicious of servants, paranoid of priests, assumes the will of God, kills the people of God, including this nonstop ongoing enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So this unrelenting anger and desire to kill the one true anointed king of Israel, who in contrast owns the sins of others, provides safety, seeks God's will, saves God's people, and is protected by the power of God. David is pictured as a safekeeping king, a savior king, and a righteous king. And yet we know that he's not perfectly righteous, is he? In fact, next week he's going to be tempted to take what's owed to him by force and by bloodshed. 
And he will break the command for kings in Deuteronomy 17 by marrying two wives. So David's obviously not the one true savior king, the righteous king that we need. Instead, he points forward to the Lord Jesus who came on a mission to save us from our sins. If you would, go ahead and flip forward in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, page 886. I started this morning by telling you that there's only two kinds of people in this world. Seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The children of God and the children of the devil. How Jesus came to crush the devil's head through his death, burial, and resurrection. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is God and that in him we beheld the glory of God and the righteousness of God. Jesus is the righteous king we need. Be clear, we need a righteous king in order to save us from our sins. Yet verse 11 says that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? To become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. They're born of God. They're spiritually born of God. John is saying there's only two kinds of people in this world. Those who believe in Jesus and those who reject Jesus. Or as he says... Children of God, and therefore necessarily children of the devil. And the truth is, we all start out as children of the devil because we're sinners in Adam, and therefore sin because we're sinners, demonstrated in the enmity, the anger, and the hostility that is evident and obvious in the way that we naturally respond to Jesus, which is pictured throughout the Bible. If you will flip forward to John chapter 8, Jesus is having this conversation with people who at one level believe what he's saying. He tells them that you can have life in him, that if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Yet as the conversation continues, there's this growing hostility against Jesus. Why is that? Well, because he minimizes their physical pedigree, the fact that they're, they're in the line of Abraham and basically is saying to them that they must be born again spiritually in order to be children of God. And because they're unwilling to listen to him, unwilling to believe in him, unwilling to trust what Jesus is saying to them, that they can be born again spiritually children of God, look at what Jesus says to them. Verse 44 John 8, 44, he says to them, you are of your father, the devil. Well, that's not very encouraging, but it's true. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. And how do these people respond? Look at verse 59. They picked up stones to throw at him, to throw at Jesus, meaning they picked up stones to kill him. Their actions demonstrate their murderers just like their fathers. So Jesus was right. They are children of the devil. 
Yet Jesus slips away, protected by the power of God. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. But what happens when Jesus' hour does come? Well, Jesus tells us, if you would, flip forward to John chapter 12, verse 27. John 12, 27. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose... I came to this hour, verse 31. Now now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world, notice, now will the ruler of this world, so the devil, be cast out, be destroyed, be defeated, be crushed. And I, when I, not if, but when I am lifted up on the cross, then I will draw all people to myself. Jesus declares that he will deliver the mortal blow to the devil at the cross, that as our righteous king and our savior king, he will crush Satan's head through his death, burial, and his resurrection. Remember Genesis 3.15, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And as a result, he makes salvation available to absolutely everyone who believes in him that they might become children of God. Here's what you need to understand this morning. That even though Jesus delivered the decisive blow at the cross, there is still a battle raging. There is a battle raging for people's souls. There is enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But how do we deal with him? It says resist him firm in your faith. Here's the question you have to ask yourself this morning. Especially when you look at these contrasting kings. Ultimately the king of this world, the devil and the king Jesus. Here's the question. Who are you going to choose? Who's your king? I told you there's 8.1 billion people in the world today. But there's only two kinds of people. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The children of God and the children of the devil. So you have to make a choice. You have to choose. Either the king of this world, the devil, or King Jesus. And as you know, as the Bible has told you, the devil is a liar. He's a liar and he's a murderer from the beginning. So he's going to lie and tell you right now, you don't have to make that choice. You don't have to do anything. You don't, you don't have to make any decision in order to be right with God. You're fine just the way you are. Don't listen to this guy. Don't listen to the Bible. There aren't consequences for your actions. Just live the way you want to live. Do what you've always done, and all will be well. That's a lie. And somebody needs to tell you. I love you too much to say to you, all is well. If you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus, all is not well. I'm appealing to you. 
Choose King Jesus. Which, yes, comes with requirements. You have to own your sin. You have to repent of it. And you have to make the choice to believe in King Jesus, which means you have to reject the ways of this world, and you most certainly have to reject your allegiance to anything but King Jesus. But oh my, it's worth it. King Jesus offers to be your Savior, which means he owns your sin. He didn't do anything. He was innocent. He was righteous. He was sinless. That he offers to take your sin upon himself. He offers to die the death that you deserve. He offers to pay your penalty and to purchase you back so that you might be a child of God. And he's willing to provide safekeeping for your soul for all the days of your life. That's why he said in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Eternal rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and I will give you rest for your souls. Oh, I appeal to you. Come to Jesus. Swear allegiance to King Jesus. Declare him to be your Savior and your Lord, and become a child of God. I invite you to come to Jesus today. Choose King Jesus. But I also want to say to you and to all those who believe in Jesus, there's a radical change that happens, must happen when you swear allegiance to King Jesus. And that change is evident and obvious in how you live your life because Jesus is not just your Savior. He's your Lord. He's your King. So you start keeping his commandments and you start walking in his ways, which looks like something. Namely, it looks like righteousness. In fact, if you would, let's flip forward to 1 John chapter 3, verse 7. All the way towards the end of the Bible. See, we're making our way from Genesis to Revelation. Isn't that fantastic? 1 John 3, verse 7, page 1022. I just want you to see this whole seed of the serpent, seed of the woman is everywhere in the Bible. Genesis to Revelation. 1 John 3, 7. Look at what John says. 1 John 3, 7. He says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he, Jesus, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. How did he do that? Through his death, his burial, and his resurrection when he crushed the head of the devil. Therefore, verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident, by this it is obvious, who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Dear professing believer, let me ask you one question. What categorizes your life? What categorizes your life? Meaning, are you walking in righteousness as a practice? 
Or are you walking in sin as a practice? If you're declaring to be in the Lord Jesus, that means you're righteous in the Lord Jesus. But that righteousness gets worked out in your life. So if righteousness, are you faithfully and consistently evaluating your actions, your attitudes, and your speech so that you can identify sin in your life, sin patterns that are evident and obvious? Are you reading the Word of God? So that you might know for certain what King Jesus commands and how he commands you to live. And what changes must take place, have to take place in your life. Are you daily trusting in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin? And for the hope of eternal life. Glorying in the gift of the Spirit which empowers you to actually put sin to death and walk in righteousness. Do you understand that ability, that power to put sin to death and to walk in righteousness is the confirmation that indeed you are a child of God? Does righteousness categorize your life? Or is your life categorized by the same old sin patterns with no growth, no power, no victory? Really, if you're honest, no change in behavior. Oh, beloved, if you are truly a child of God, then it will be evident and obvious by the changes in your life. Why is that? Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and to give you real power over sin. I challenge you, and I exhort you to evaluate your life, to identify sin, to put it to death, and to walk in righteousness that no doubt will be evident and obvious for the whole world to see, including your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, I pray that we would be a people whose lives are marked by righteousness, demonstrating beyond the shadow of a doubt that we are children of the Most High God. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're so grateful for your word, grateful for its instruction. And Lord, we're praying that you would be doing a good work here this morning, that we would be those who wholeheartedly declare our allegiance to King Jesus, that we would reject all other idols in our lives, and that we would love him only, adore him truly, rejoice in him with undivided hearts, living for his glory, his honor, and his praise. Lord, I pray that we would choose King Jesus every single day. We would love him, delight in him, and out of love for him, empowered by the Spirit, that we would demonstrate our love for him in the righteousness in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would be doing that good work for our good and for your eternal glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.